If you guys want to turn to Matthew chapter 9, I am I'm going to start with a, a story. In the winter of 1925, a small Alaskan town called Nome, which is situated on the edge of the Arctic Circle, found itself on the brink of an unimaginable crisis. An outbreak of diphtheria threatened to wipe out the entire community of 1,400 people. Nome's lone physician, Curtis Welch, feared that if the infection spread, it could destroy the surrounding communities, totaling more than 10,000 people. The outbreak began in December 1924 when Welch saw what he thought were cases of tonsillitis, but when the number of cases grew and children began to drop dead, he feared the worst. Diphtheria is a highly contagious bacterial disease that attacks the respiratory system. Fortunately, a cure was available, an antitoxin. The problem was that the antitoxin was almost 700 miles away, and there was no way for a boat to get there because the harbor was frozen over, and there was no way for a plane to get there because there were only open cockpit planes at the time. The only way to get it there was by dog sled. The U.S. Post Office recruited the best dog sled teams, a total of 20, and positioned them along the route. The entire route ordinarily took the Postal Service 25 days to cover, but Dr. Welch couldn't wait that long because the serum only lasted six days and people were dying. The dogs would have to complete the journey in less than a quarter of the normal time. So the journey began on the night of January the 27th. The first musher left with his team of 11 dogs, and the temperature dropped to negative 58. He developed hypothermia, and by the time he'd completed his 52-mile leg, three of his dogs were dead. The serum then made its way from one musher to the next. Some dogs collapsed from frostbite. One musher had to hook up to the harness and help pull his own sled. One musher got hit with an 80-mile-an-hour gust as a storm came in. His sled flipped and he had to take off his gloves to dig the serum out of the snow, and he got frostbite on his hands. The storm that ripped over Alaska had wind chills of 85 degrees, negative 85 degrees Fahrenheit. Then one of the mushers made a dangerous drive across the Norton Sound with his lead dog, Togo, navigating the way in the blinding storm. The dog alone navigated this because no one could see. And then Balto led the last dog sled team into Nome with the precious serum. Altogether, it took them only five and a half days, and the entire town was saved. The men who led these dog sled teams, they saw the desperate need. They saw the helplessness of the people who were dying in Nome. They had compassion. And that compassion moved them, and they saved that town. And what a joy they must have felt to be a part of that rescue mission. Well, Jesus is also on a rescue mission here in Matthew 9. Look with me at verse 35. It says, and Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless, 
like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So Jesus is on a rescue mission. And he is going, it says, throughout all the cities and villages. He's, he's going from town to town. And he's doing two things as he goes into these villages. He is proclaiming the gospel and he's healing the sick. I love this picture of Jesus. Just imagine him going into every town. And as he comes in, he begins to proclaim the gospel. He's healing everyone. There's, there's joy and excitement. He's got the whole town there. And they're being healed and they're being saved. Jesus is bringing blessing and joy and wholeness. And this is what he does everywhere he goes. And it's also what the early church does in Acts. They are preaching the gospel and healing the sick. So Jesus is on a mission. Why is he on this mission? Well, verse 36 tells us, because people are harassed and helpless. They're like sheep without a shepherd. Now, sheep are extremely temperamental and vulnerable creatures. They're constantly being harassed and picked off by predators with almost no way to defend themselves. And they even harass one another. Without a shepherd, they create a pecking order. They'll, they'll push each other off a nice tuft of grass and sometimes not let other sheep drink or even rest. The sheep become anxious and unable to function. Without a shepherd, they blindly follow one another into bad decisions. They, they can't find food or water on their own. It's not uncommon for them to starve or dehydrate. They're probably the clearest example of helpless creatures. Now, human babies are the most helpless creatures at birth, but eventually they're able to take care of themselves. At least in theory, they're supposed to be able to take care of themselves. But sheep remain helpless for the duration of their lives. And when Jesus sees these sheep, when he sees all the crowds in, in all the cities, his response is compassion. Now, the Greek word here, which I can't pronounce, is much stronger than compassion. It means that when he saw the crowds, it was gut-wrenching. That it, it broke his heart. His, his heart went out to them. And I love this about Jesus. He, he has great compassion. They have no shepherd. They're, they're sheep without a shepherd. They're getting harassed and beat up. They're leading each other astray. They're, they're being led to the slaughter. Jesus is moved by this. It, it brings out great compassion in him. Oskar Schindler was a member of the Nazi party during World War II, and he ran a factory in Poland where he employed many Jews. And as the war went on, Oskar began to notice how the Jews were being treated. And it grew worse and worse and worse. In the movie Schindler's List, there is this scene where 
where Schindler is up on a hill and he is seeing the Nazis as they, what they called liquidating the Krakow ghetto. They're killing people, dragging people off to the death camps. And there's a scene where a little girl in a red coat, the whole movie is black and white, and you see this little girl, the only color you see is this red coat, and she begins walking through as people are being shot and killed, and it's, it's a very artistic way of, of showing that Schindler saw her. He saw this little girl as she walked through, and, and in a later scene, he sees her body in that little red coat on a wagon as she's, her body's, she's dead, she's being carted away. Oscar Schindler saw the Jews. He saw that they were harassed and helpless. And he had compassion. A compassion that moved him to do whatever he could to save them. Jesus had compassion when he saw the lost sheep in all the towns of Israel. He saw them, and it moved him. Jesus had eyes to see that people were being harassed. Do we? I often don't. I often don't see the lost. I I. I don't see the people who are being harassed. I'm, I'm too busy thinking about myself. Commentator Charles Price says, compassion comes from seeing people in their true state. Praying for compassion is not likely to be very effective. Opening our eyes to see people as they really are is the true source of compassion. Brothers and sisters, non-Christians are lost. They are helpless. And Jesus saw them in their true state, that they were separated from God. They were storing up wrath for the day of judgment. Do we see them in their true state do we see that there are people all around us that don't know Jesus? And the enemy is harassing them day and night. Our neighbors, our coworkers, our family members, they're being deceived. People all around us are hurting. They're anxious and depressed and dejected and lonely and suicidal. They're being funneled down a path of destruction, deceived into thinking that the things of this world will bring them joy but instead they live in pain and sorrow and hopelessness. And they're helpless. They're, they're trapped. They can't get out. They, they can't break their chains. They can't save themselves. When Jesus saw this, his compassion welled up inside of him. Do we have compassion when we see the lost? Does it, does it break your heart? Is it gut-wrenching? It often isn't for me. I often don't see the lost. And then at times, I can see them as a problem. 
I can look down on people whose lives are messed up. I can view them as not worth the effort and, and at times even see them as the enemy. Jesus doesn't see them this way. Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't see you that way? He sees the lost sheep. And he sees them with compassion. But there is another problem besides the fact that people are harassed and helpless. There's a major problem. We don't have enough people to help them. The other problem is that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. That's verse 37. The problem isn't that the harvest is plentiful. We usually want a plentiful harvest. And if there isn't anything to harvest, that's an even bigger problem. But this harvest is the lost sheep that need to be rescued. It's the lost men and women that need to hear the gospel. The problem that Jesus highlights is not the harvest. There's plenty to harvest. It's that we don't have enough people to do the work. We don't have the workers. There aren't enough people in the fields. The crop is going to die. People are going to die. And Jesus wants to help them. Jesus switches analogies here. He, he could have stuck with the sheep and the need to rescue them, but he switches to this huge field that can't be harvested. This is a major tragedy. Bringing in a harvest is supposed to be a time of celebration, a time of joy and blessing, but a harvest that is wasted and dies, that's cause for great sorrow and mourning. One farmer in California, I just read about this recently, he had to allow millions of strawberries to rot because there was no one to pick them. Another farmer was forced to plow 300,000 heads of lettuce into the ground because he had no one to help with the harvest. Do you see the, the massive harvest all around you? Your neighbors, your coworkers, your family members, classmates, Waitresses, people at the gym, at the grocery store, at the bank, at Starbucks, your mechanic, your hairdresser, your mailman. There are plenty of lost people. We, we have not run out of them. There are non-Christians all around us. It's a huge harvest field. And the heart of Christ is to help them. And he wants you to help him with the harvest. We can make a difference in this. I mean, you can almost hear Jesus encouraging us. You, you can do this. There's a guy in our church that recently came through the bridge course. His name is Romeo, and he was a staunch atheist. He used to try to convince people that Christianity wasn't true. There was a coworker who had lost her boyfriend, and she was crying one day at her desk, and, and Romeo came in over to her and said, what's wrong? And she said, why? I lost my boyfriend and he died, but God is helping me through this. He said, God is not helping you. You're getting through this on your own. And he would watch all the YouTube videos to be able to tear down Christian. Well, his son brought him to the bridge course. And as he came, he came to the bridge course to, to tear people down. But the Lord had a different plan. And so as he heard God's word coming at him each week, the Lord began to penetrate his defenses and softened his heart, and he came to Christ. And he said in his testimony that when he came to Christ, 
He couldn't stop thinking about grace. He said, all I do at work is I write the word grace down and I write little, like, I forget what they're called, like acronyms, and he's writing little Tracy cross sticks. He's writing cross sticks, and he's like little crosswords and just, he said, I can't stop thinking about God's grace. Brothers and sisters, we can tell people about this grace we can show them how they can be rescued. We, we can take them to the good shepherd. We just need to join Jesus in the fields. God wants to use us to rescue people who are lost. Now, I know it's hard, and I also know it's very easy to feel guilty and condemned. We all feel like failures when it comes to this, don't we? But let's not let the flesh condemn us and convince us we'll never change. Let's not ignore what God's trying to do this morning. Conviction is a gift from God, and so is repentance. And God is eager to forgive us and to change us. He doesn't just leave us where we are. He changes us, and he conforms us into the image of Christ. When we see Jesus in the Gospels, we are seeing what God wants us to be like. And we're not on our own. We have the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit working in us to help us become more like Christ. And in this passage, good news, Jesus tells us what we should do. Look at verse 38. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So that's number one. What do we do? Number one, point one, pray. Point one, pray. Now, please note who we're praying to. The Lord of the harvest. That means that he's in charge of the harvest. He's overseeing the whole thing. We are not in charge, thank God. It's not up to us to do this on our own. God is the key in evangelism. That's good news. We don't have to put undue pressure on ourselves or think that it's all up to us. It's not. It's up to God to, to bring these lost sheep into the fold. Now, we do have an important role to play, a very important role. We're, we're called to befriend the lost and then share the message of the gospel. We have to get to work in the field, but God does the heavy lifting. He's behind everything that we want to see happen. We need God to direct us to people. We need God to give us favor with them. We need God to open their hearts, to convict them of sin, to give them a clear understanding of the gospel and the work of Christ on the cross. We need God to regenerate them, to give them the gift of faith and repentance and to save them. We can't do any of that, which is why prayer is so critical. It's why Jesus says we should pray to the Lord of the harvest, to the Father, and it's why Jesus says we should pray earnestly. We should pray fervently. And this is where spending time with non-Christians and seeing how lost they are will help us. It, it will produce compassion, which in turn will naturally lead to prayer. Mark McCloskey says, if you want to develop a burden for the lost, Go out and talk to the lost and find out how lost they really are. Let me read that again. This quote can change your life. 
If you want to develop a burden for the lost, go out and talk to the lost and find out how lost they really are. See, spending time with those who don't know the Lord will fuel our prayers. It's like praying for an orphan that you're sponsoring in Africa. We would pray periodically for the kids that we sponsored through Covenant Mercies. But when I traveled to Zambia and I saw the little girl that we sponsored, a little girl named Prudence, and we saw where she lived and what her life was like, I felt incredible. Unfortunately, I cried all over this poor little girl, this white Mzungu, that's what they call it. This big Mzungu is like crying over this girl and giving her these gifts. She She has no idea like what's happening here. But seeing prudence, it just produced such compassion and it just fueled my prayers. It just compelled me to pray in ways I never have. And it's the same with the lost. Spend time with them and you will pray for them. And you will pray earnestly. But what do you pray? Well, first pray that the Lord of the harvest will send out workers into the harvest field. That the one who is sovereign in salvation will send out laborers into his harvest. This passage is emphasizing the need for laborers. Jesus is in the middle of the harvest and he wants us to join him. The the problem is not with the harassed sheep that are lost and running away from God or the availability of the ripe wheat, which is the readiness of people to hear and receive the gospel. It's just that we don't have enough workers. We don't have enough laborers to get into the fields. We don't have enough Christians who will do the hard work of reaching the lost. We don't have enough Christians willing to sacrifice to reach men and women with the gospel. So we must pray. Do you pray for the lost? Do you pray for opportunities to share the gospel? Do you pray for the mission? Do you pray for boldness? Do you pray for evangelists and missionaries? Do you pray for the spread of the gospel? So that's number one, pray. Number two, go. Now, it's not enough to just see the need, to feel compassion, or even to pray. We must go. Prayer leads to going. It's not an option for us as followers of Christ to keep the message of the gospel to ourselves. No, we have to reach out to the lost, not just send someone else, not just the bold people, not just the extroverted people, not just the mature Christians or the gifted evangelists or those on the mission fields or those on the church plant, but us. Now, where do I get this from? Well, I get this from chapter 10. Notice that Jesus didn't just set up a series of prayer meetings to pray for the lost. He immediately sends out the disciples to do what he's been doing. Jesus didn't intend to be the only one in the harvest field. He always intended for his followers to do the harvesting. He hinted at this in chapter 4 when he said, I will make you fishers of men. 
So in chapter 10, there is a significant transition taking place. Jesus has been the one doing all of the ministry. So he's out front. He's preaching the gospel and healing the sick. And he's out in front, and the disciples are always bringing up the rear. They're more like crowd control. They're more like carrying the bags. They're, they're like the, the bench players on an NBA team. Have you ever seen how the job of the bench players, they're, they're just the hype guys, right? So if somebody has a slam dunk, they're like, oh, wow, and they have to jump up and kind of applaud, and that's, that's, what, those bench, that's what the disciples are. Like Jesus, I don't know, he raises somebody from the dead, like, oh, wow, they, you know, and they, they have to kind of like hold each other back, and that's, that's all they're doing right now. But in chapter 10, there's this massive transfer, a passing of the baton. So Jesus was the one doing all of the ministry. Now he sends them out to do the ministry. The disciples were an answer to prayer, specifically his prayer to send labors into the harvest. Oh, good. Now we have 12. We have 12 harvesters. Praise God. Now you might object because you say, well, wait a second. These guys are the apostles. I mean, some of these guys wrote scripture. They're the all-stars and I'm not. Well, they're actually not all-stars. They're actually nothing special. One commentator said that the picture of them is of sheer ordinariness and that they are the unspectacular raw material that God likes to work with. Aren't you glad that God works with unspectacular raw material? And if you're not convinced, in Luke chapter 10, after Jesus sends out the 12, Jesus then sends out the 72. So if the disciples were the bench warmers, I mean, these guys are like in the D League. These are just like regular old followers of Christ. We don't even know their names. And that's because they're us. It's because all followers of Christ are called to help others become followers of Christ. But it ain't going to be that easy. After our bridge course, when we do the bridge, we do a follow-up called a bridge study. And so it's like a Bible study that's helping people to integrate into the church. And there was a guy there, uh, his name was Bill, and he hadn't become a Christian. He's a real blue-collar guy. And, and so afterwards, I said, at the end of this bridge study, I said, so Bill, are you going to be coming to church? And he goes, well, it ain't going to be that easy. And I'm like, oh, really, Bill? Well, why isn't it going to be that? He goes, well, spring and all. And he meant like, you know, spring is coming. I don't know, he's got to mulch and, the, you know, he's got to start mowing the yard and stuff. But that phrase became very important in my family and has been used for many years. Like when I say, um, okay, uh, kids, can you mow the lawn? Well, it ain't going to be that easy. <laughs> and that's very true when it comes to evangelism. It ain't going to be that easy. As we get into chapter 10, we see a gathering storm. Jesus tells us there's a gathering storm, and he's going to take the brunt of this storm. The opposition is going to be intense and unrelenting. Jesus will experience trials and resistance and violence until, the end, until they finally get him, and they have their way with him. And that is part of his calling and mission. And it's true for us as well. Like Jesus, we will be opposed in our mission to reach the lost. And it's getting worse. The message of the gospel, that we're sinners who deserve hell and can only be saved through the death of Christ, is not a popular message. In fact, everything we believe is basically offensive. 
We've lost whatever popularity we at one time had, and we're increasingly seen as hateful, unethical, and oppressive. And the opposition is getting worse, which should not surprise us. Jesus prepared us for this. Look at Matthew chapter 10. I want to show you just several verses in here that are just, it's just stunning. So Jesus prayed Matthew 10. He's now got the 12 disciples. These are an answer to his prayer. He sends them out. In verse seven, he says, and proclaim as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is hand, and heal the sick. So there it is. So they're doing the same thing that Jesus did. Proclaim the gospel and heal the sick. This is that baton being passed. Now they're coming up front. Jesus is gonna come behind them. And verse 14, look at it. It says, and if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, wait a second. So when we go out, there's some people that might not receive us or listen to our words? One of the disciples were like, hey, did you know that that was gonna happen? Okay, I don't know. Well, let's read on in verse 16. Jesus says, behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Now, this has got to be the worst motivational speech in the history. <laughs> Think about this. Jesus is like, okay, guys, everybody, everybody bring it in. Okay, get your hands on the, on the count of three, sheep among wolves. Okay, ready? One, two, three. Sheep among wolves. Right? Yeah, sheep among wolves. Sheep among wolves. What? Sheep among wolves. This is, there's no competition here. I did a research on this. I did some research on this years ago, and it was something like, you know, like sheep have 16 teeth, a wolf has like 38. A sheep can run this fast, a wolf runs three times. Like, there's no, this is like you're dead meat. Jesus is basically saying, you're dead. I'm sending you to your death. I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of these wolves. Can you imagine being the disciples and hearing this? And being, this is how you're being sent out. Verse 17, beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues and you'll be dragged before governors and kings. What? You're, we're gonna be flogged? We're gonna be dragged before governors? Verse 21, brother will deliver brother over to death. What in the world? Your own brother. You wanna be part of the mission? Your own brother is going to deliver you over to death and the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Anybody want to sign up for the mission here? Okay, great. You're going to be hated by all. What in the world? I mean, the cost of this is extraordinary. And then look at verse 23. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. Okay, now you're a fugitive. And then verse 26. So have no fear of them. What? What are you talking about? Have no fear of them. You just told us we're going to be flogged. We're going to be driving for governors that everybody's basically going to hate us. Our own kids are going to turn us in and fathers are going to turn against us and, and, and have us killed. We're gonna be fugitives. Don't worry about it. Ha, don't be afraid. Have no fear. How can he say this? Well, verse 28. Do not fear those who kill the body, 
but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So what does Jesus do? He takes us immediately to an eternal perspective. It's not about what happens here. It's about what happens there. And we can sacrifice here because of what we'll gain there. And then he says in verse 32, so everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven, but whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. So now it's not an option. It's not an option to do this. We, we can't deny him. We have to acknowledge him. And then verse 34, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. Now, he did come to bring, Romans 5, peace between us and God, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a vertical peace. Horizontally, he's not coming to bring peace between us and others. It's gonna be a war. It's, it's gonna be a fight. It's, it's gonna be a battle. He says, for I have, this is verse 35, for I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In other words, you have to put the mission above your family. You have to take up your cross and be willing to die for this mission. Yikes. I mean, when I became a Christian, I didn't know I was signing up for all this, right? I mean, it feels like you're signed up for the Cub Scouts and you end up on Paris Island for the Marine Corps boot camp, right? I mean, when you, when you became a Christian, you might not have realized this, but you signed up for a mission to bring the light of the gospel into dark places. And as we seek to carry out that mission, we will meet with opposition. Like Jesus, we're going to be opposed. That doesn't mean we're doing something wrong. In fact, it means we're doing something right. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And church, we have to be prepared for this. If we're gonna be faithful stewards of the gospel message, if we're gonna be a church that reaches into the darkness, we have to be able to absorb the blows of the opposition. Like boxers, we have to be able to take some hits. One of the things I love, I love the Rocky movies. Spoiler alert, if you haven't seen them, every movie is about Rocky getting beat to a pulp, and then at the end, he, he, he wins. He stands up and he beats the guy up. And there's a great quote, I think it's in Balboa, which is like, I don't know, the 600 movie or whatever, but he says to his son, it ain't about how hard you can hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. It's my best Rocky impression, all right? I have some Italian to me. Um, but he's right. And, and church, listen, we need to be able to take a hit and keep moving forward with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to be able to absorb the blows of the opposition. Charles Spurgeon said, if ever anybody should despise us for Christ's sake, let us not count it hard. 
But let us be willing to bear scorn and contempt for him. Let us say to ourselves, then did they spit in his face. What then if they also spit in mine? If they do, I will hail reproach and welcome shame since it comes upon me for his dear sake. See that wretch is about to spit in Christ's face? Put your cheek forward that you may catch that spittle upon your face, that it fall not upon him again. For as he was put to such terrible shame, everyone who has been redeemed with his precious blood ought to count it an honor to be a partaker of the shame if by any means we may screen him from being further despised and rejected of men. There is a powerful scene at the end of Schindler's List when Schindler must flee the country after saving over 1,100 Jews. He had risked his life time and time again. He gave the equivalent of over $100 million of his own money to rescue as many Jewish men, women, and children as he could. And at the end in this scene, he's there with all 1,100 Jews and his friend Ithak Stern. And Schindler says, I could have got more out. I could have got more. I don't know if I just, I could have got more. And Ithak says, Oscar, there are 1,100 people who are here because of you. Look at them. And he says, if I made more money, I threw away so much money, you have no idea. If I had just, and he says, there will be generations because of what you did. Schindler says, I didn't do enough. You did so much. He says, this car, Goth would have bought this car. Why did I keep the car? 10 people right there. 10 people, 10 more people. And then he removes the Nazi pin from his lapel. This pin, he says, two people. This is gold. Two more people. He would have given me two for it. At least one, one more person, a person stern for this. And he just breaks down into sobbing. He says, I could have gotten one more person. And I didn't. And I didn't. Oscar Schindler saw the Jewish people in their desperate plight. He sacrificed so much to save so many. He was like Christ in this. But he was right. He didn't give everything. Jesus did. Jesus gave everything to save the lost. Jesus did sacrifice his life. When Jesus saw us in our lost condition as we were barreling toward hell, storing up wrath for the day of judgment, careening toward an eternity of suffering. He had compassion. It was gut-wrenching to him. And so he left his throne above, and he became one of us. He became the son of man. He clothed himself in flesh so that his flesh could be pierced, so that his body could take our curse and absorb our punishment. He gave everything, even his life, to save us from hell. And he calls us to take up our cross and follow him and to bring the light of the gospel into a dark world. Yes, it is dangerous and scary, but Jesus gives us the power of the Holy Spirit 
who gives us boldness to overcome our fears so that we can reach the lost with the greatest news in the world, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you gave everything. Lord, how will we ever thank you enough? We will never thank you enough for what you have done to save us. Lord, thank you that when you saw us, you had compassion, that it was gut-wrenching, that it was heartbreaking. Lord, thank you that you saw us and that it moved you. And you came to this earth and gave everything that you had. And Lord, I pray, oh Lord, please help each of us. Give us eyes to see. Help us to see the lost. Lord, I, I pray that we would see people in that red coat would appear and we would notice them. And it would be gut-wrenching. It would be it would break our hearts and you would use us to reach out with the good news of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.